Hey, this is Mark, and you're listening to Stuff Matters. In this episode, we learn about the chemicals used in our food. Why are they used in the first place? Which ones are dangerous? Why do they all sound so scary? When did products have to put a label on their packaging? Why are there so many different milk percentages? And what's the difference between organic and inorganic foods? All that and more as we dive in and explore the chemicals used in our foods. But first, let's read a recent headline from the NEWS, the news. This week's headline comes from the University of Arlingen, Nuremberg. Published on March 17th, 2021, it reads, Researchers break bonds in molecular nitrogen with calcium. A brief summary is a research team has demonstrated that calcium, a metal commonly found in nature, is able to break the highly stable nitrogen bond, and can do this at minus 60 degrees Celsius. This is significant because in terms of the bond-breaking capabilities of calcium, it has been largely disregarded in the past. These findings can also form the basis for developing industrial processes in the future. So, that's a great summary and all, but what does it all mean? Well, you see, bonds like nitrogen plus nitrogen, meaning N2, create a triple bond where the atoms share three electrons with each other. To break this bond, it takes a lot of energy. To do this, we perform what is called the Haber-Bosch process, where a transition metal acts as a catalyst to trigger the reaction of nitrogen becoming NH3, ammonia. The conversion of highly stable nitrogen into ammonia requires high pressures and high temperatures, meaning Haber's process requires a large amount of energy. Chemists have looked for other ways to make the strong N2 triple bond more simple to break. In doing so, they also try to find other ways to break other strong bonds. A team of researchers, led by Professor Dr. Sawyerd Harder, have successfully demonstrated that calcium is capable of achieving this. Calcium has been commonly found in nature through limestone and has been regarded in the past as not being able to break strong bonds like the N2 triple bond. However, this research team accidentally came over this discovery. The main research of Dr. Sawyer Harder's team was looking over calcium atoms at an oxidation level of plus one. However, they came across that the metal reacts with nitrogen, which was supposed to be used as an inert gas during the experiments. Dr. Sawyer Harder and his team isolated a molecule that was trapped in the nitrogen between two calcium atoms and were able to continue the conversion to hydrazine. Hydrazine is used as a highly reactive rocket fuel. The FAU research team discovered that the d orbitals were to play a major role in nitrogen activation with calcium. These d orbitals come from the outer ring that you see in atoms. So calcium's outer ring is what's bonding to the nitrogen and breaking the strong triple bond. Because this process of using calcium to break the N2 triple bond is not catalytic, 
nor economical. It gives us some important insights into breaking bonds with calcium. This finding will contribute to the development of simplified industrial processes, meaning it will be a lot easier to make things such as hydrazine, thanks to calcium. With the news out of the way, let's kick it on over to the TOPIC, the topic. So chemicals used in our foods are also known as food additives. But to understand everything else later on, we first need to understand two simple concepts. First off, what are fats? Fats are a lipid, or an organic compound, which contains a lot of carbon and a lot of hydrogen, and sometimes oxygen. They can vary in lengths and structures, which makes up the different kinds of fats, like fats being the vitamin A, or fats being your own fat. Now, food additives use fats in many different ways, but I want to ask you the question of how fats are extracted in the first place. How do these people get fats in their hands? Fat extraction is done in two steps. This is also known as solvent extraction, where you use the right solvent for the job. So if the fat is able to be solvented in, say, chloroform, benzene, or acetone, those are the common solvents, then it could be extracted through those liquids. The fat is extracted from the food by, say, dumping the food into the liquid. And these solvents extract the fat from the food without doing any harm to the food itself. Then you take the food out of the solvent, and now you have fat with the solvent liquid. Next thing to do is just to simply evaporate the solvent, and in the end, you're going to have fat. It's really that simple. I will repeat it again. You take a solvent, such as chloroform, benzene, acetone, you dunk the food into the solvent, and the solvent extracts the fat without doing harm to the food. Then you evaporate the solvent, and in the end, you have the fat. And that's how people extract fats. They've been doing this for years. Now, the next concept that we should address is the differences between organic and inorganic. This is something I also wanted to know personally. So organic, on its own, is something that contains carbon atoms. We, ourselves, as humans, are organic beings. So is everything around us that's alive and naturally made in nature. Inorganic is something that does not contain carbon atoms, most of the time. Inorganic is also known as something that has been man-made or synthesized. This leads into organic and inorganic foods. Organic foods are naturally made in nature. They're picked from the tree or bush or whatever the food grows off of, processed a little bit by cleaning it up, and shipped out. That's it. Organic foods are known to be a little more expensive, and this is because they are demanded a lot more. People nowadays demand organic foods more than inorganic foods, just to say that it's healthier. And at some extent it is, but I'm not going to go into that here, because that's a whole episode topic on its own. Also, the process of organic foods and taking them down, cleaning them, processing them, shipping them out is a lot more expensive as they take a lot more care to not damage the natural food that was made. Now let's talk about inorganic foods. Inorganic foods have been synthesized to make a better product. Inorganic foods have been synthesized at a molecular level, meaning that 
crop breeding has been possible. So if you don't like the taste of one watermelon, you can synthesize it, make it inorganic, and put out a new seed that produces a different kind of tasting watermelon. If we go back to the definition of organic over inorganic on its own, remember how I said that one contains carbon atoms while the other most of the time does not contain the carbon atoms. So in this process of synthesizing, the carbon atoms can be taken off of the food, which could possibly lead to a better taste. So that's great. Now we understand the differences between organic and inorganic, both foods and in chemicals. We also understand how fat is extracted, and how so many people get their hands on fat to use on foods and food additives. Now let's get into some history and current places where food additives are used. Food additives have been added since our great ancestors, as they smoked meats to improve its taste and submerged it into salty water to keep it preserved. Spices have been traded way back to 3000 BC, which has led to a high demand for food additives to make enhanced food flavors. It's been theorized that sugar was first used as a preservative for foods. While records also show spices for preserving meat and preventing bacteria growth. From the 18 to 1900s, we saw technology advancements with refrigerators, elaborate transportation, and canned goods. As the demand for quality and convenience increased, so did food additives. To meet with these demands and cost efficiency, Producers began to package and transport foods at a very worrying rate. In the 20th century, producers relied heavily on technology for consumer satisfaction. Use of food additives became routine to improve taste and shelf life. If we look back at the 1850s, we'll see that foodborne illnesses were extremely common. Our 12th president, Zachary Taylor, died of foodborne illness found in a fruit that he ate at a picnic one day. This prompted Abe Lincoln to create the United States Department of Agriculture, also known as the USDA, in 1862. This created strict guidelines for handling and processing. However, comma, it wasn't until the 1860s when the demand for ingredients skyrocketed, when Americans started to shift to have more home-cooked meals. In 1966, we saw the USDA mandate a list of ingredients that must be placed on all products participating in in-state commerce. Companies began putting health benefits on their products, which were mostly untrue and misleading. But that's just a brief history on food additives and ingredients and product labeling and this and that. Now, how about the current situation of food additives? Situation? Is that what we're calling it? Uh, we'll see. In today's world, food additives are super duper common in almost everything, and here's a list of five common food additives you may have heard of. First off, there's monosodium glutamate, also known as MSG. This enhances flavors and is used in almost every single fancy restaurant. It's also used for processing frozen foods, canned foods, and your favorite salty snacks. Next, we see food coloring. That's self-explanatory. It's used to make foods appear a certain color, to make them more appealing. 
However, did you know that certain food coloring mixes can have an allergic reaction for certain individuals? If you give somebody blue 1, red 40, yellow 6, there's a chance that they can have an allergic reaction to it. Primarily, food coloring is used for processed foods. Next, we see sodium nitrate. This is used for processed meats. They are to prevent bacteria growth while adding a salty flavor and reddish-pink color to your meats. Next is gargum. Gargum are long chains of carbohydrates used to thicken and bind foods, such as your ice cream, salad dressings, condiments, sauces, and soups. Gargum is commonly known to lower blood sugar and cholesterol. And finally, we have the one that is probably most well-known, high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup is made from corn. It's in the name. It's used as a sweetener in sodas, juice, candy, cereal, sweets, etc., etc., so on and so forth. You get the picture. It's used as a sugary sweetener, which is rich in a type of sugar called fructose, hence why it's called high fructose corn syrup. Now what about the scarier sounding food additives? Well, why do they sound so scary in the first place? I like to think that it's because we don't really know what these big words mean. And in not knowing, this makes us nervous about what's really inside that we are consuming. I'm going to list off some food additives that are really big names that people worry about, but are actually a-okay. There is pyridoxine. This is not an acid and is the official scientific chemical name for vitamin B6. Then there is ascorbyl palmitate. Ascorbyl palmitate is a natural compound made from vitamin C and palmitic acid. These two can be found in fats. This food additive prevents foods from spoiling and is broken down back into vitamin C and the acid once consumed. Another big scary name is gluconodelta-lactone. Gluconodelta-lactone is used to increase acidic foods like lemon leaf flavor. They are also used in baked goods. And finally, another big scary name for food additives is oxidane. Oxidane is the official, get this, the official chemical word for water. Oh my god. Some products say that they have oxidane in them, and if you see that, just know they used water. Regular chemists and official scientists of the like will probably know that by now. But for the common man, you probably did not know that. And now you can start calling your water oxidane, like a smarty pants. To close off this hot topic, I'd like to talk about the differences in milk percentages. We're going to come full circle here and bring back our knowledge of how fats are extracted. So differences in milk, we see whole milk, 2% milk, 1% milk, and skim milk. What's the difference? The differences in the milks that we consume are the amount of fat that they have. Whole milk is the regular milk that, you know, you get from cows and dairy and the like, mixed with half of it being fats, nutritional fats. The 2% milk 
has a third of fat. And then we see the 1% and skim milk, which are the true low-fat milks. So if you're not a big fan of fats, or the nutritional value that they give you, or if they are somehow harmful to you, go for 1% or skim milk. Whole milk, or 2% milk, I usually go back and forth between those sometimes, do have good nutritional value, but they're not for everybody. It's really up to you, and if you're lactose intolerant, or this, or that, or I'm sure you've figured it out by now, but if not, uh, you'll figure it out, trust me. Just know that the differences are to accommodate to different people who cannot handle the amounts of fat. And if you want to go completely away from fats, try almond milk. I've tried it. It's pretty good. I like it. Although I haven't looked into if they add anything. Hmm. I hear people just don't like milk in general and don't drink it anymore after like they turn 20 or 25. Personally, I always drink my milk. And I really like milk, even though <laughs> it can make me gassy sometimes. So yeah, with all of that, I think that about wraps up the chemicals used in our food. <sighs> that was a lot of information. How about we take some restful R&R for just a quick minute? <laughs> This week I am looking forward to getting outside more, since that winter's over and spring is finally here, meaning more sunshine and rainbows. And I got a recent tune-up on my bike, meaning I can go ride around more. Yay! I will let you know that the winter time where I'm at right now is definitely not my favorite season, because it is just a good three months of rain. I come from a small town where it does not rain a lot, so having to get used to this for the first time uh, was a little difficult. I'm also looking forward to doing two other research projects on the side. While I do this podcast, I make an effort to do about one to about, um, I would say, no more than four hours each day to do my research on the topic of each episode, meaning through podcast episodes that I find, or internet searches, or books. But starting now, I'm doing two other small research projects for class. One of them is going to be a presentation on the U.S.-Mexico border and how it's affecting the indigenous tribes along that border. The other is going to be a one-off podcast episode on why minorities are minorities. So that's going to be interesting, and I hope that I don't get all the information too confused or mixed up. I'm going to need to buy some notebooks or something. That that would be a good idea. So yeah. All right, I think R&R time is over. How about we R-E-C-A-P, recap. <laughs> So now we've learned a lot more than I originally thought we would. We've learned that calcium is able to break the strong nitrogen triple bond. And in doing so, this can hopefully help other researchers to find better ways of breaking bonds and creating the domino effect of producing products in a more efficient manner 
like the hydrazine being used as rocket fuel, which was made from the ammonium, which is made from the broken apart nitrogen. Then in the topic, we learned about how fats are extracted and what's the difference between organic and inorganic, both in the chemicals and in foods. Then there was a brief history on foods and labeling and Abraham Lincoln making the USDA. There's so many chemicals out there that people think sound super scary, but it's mainly because they're just really big words and we don't know what they actually mean. Here's a tip. If you don't know what something means looking at it, maybe just Google it. It'll be out there somewhere. If it's a strange chemical, I'm 90% guaranteed that you'll be able to find what it actually does on Google. Then there's the scarier sounding ones that don't really do much harm to you. They are actually very good for you. Like oxidane or water. I was able to learn the differences between milk, and that was something I had no idea for a very long time until now. So yeah. That's all for now. Tune in next time where we learn about the dangerous elements, and why they're so dangerous in the first place. Be sure to follow me so that way you don't miss a beat when the new episode drops. I do my best to upload every Saturday. If you want more Stuff Matters, follow me on Twitter at underscore Stuff Matters. Maybe you have a good idea for an episode topic you want me to research on, or you want to send me some fan mail, or a critique to help make the show better. To reach out to me, email me at stuffmatterspodcast at gmail.com. I've been Mark, and thank you for listening to Stuff Matters.